Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will, tear, will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on the mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in its place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is sweeter to us than honey. We are desperate for it this morning, oh God, and we, we praise you that you have given us these exact words. Of all the things that you could have given to us, uh, these are the words, and therefore we need these words. So Lord, may you use them by the power of your spirit working within us this morning to, to sanctify us in your truth because your word is truth. May Christ Jesus be made much of this morning as we set our hopes and our affections upon him. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been studying the book of Isaiah, we have seen time and time again, the prophet pronouncing judgment. Judgment upon Israel, judgment upon Judah, judgment upon the surrounding nations of Israel. But it's the whole world in chapter 24 that we see God's judgment being pronounced upon. So this is widespread. The pride, the immorality, the detesting of all things holy and pleasing to the one true God, these are the ways 
of the children of Adam. But what is constantly surprising to me and truly amazing is that judgment in the book of Isaiah doesn't get the last word. Hope and redemption always follow. The patience, the grace, the mercy, the steadfast love, the covenant keeping of Yahweh shines through the deep darkness of sin and judgment. And I believe that Isaiah was amazed by these things as well because chapter 25 of the book of Isaiah is one long hymn of praise. In this chapter, Isaiah praised the Lord for these reasons, for victory over Israel's enemies, for the Lord's rich banquet for all peoples, for his swallowing up of death forever, and for the long's awaited salvation. So as we work through Isaiah 25, his hymn of praise this morning, we're going to consider first praise for the Lord's victory in the first five verses, praise for the Lord's salvation in verses six through nine, and then praise for the Lord's judgment in verses 10 through 12. So first, praise for the Lord's victory. Isaiah begins his hymn with these words. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Isaiah is a prophet that is surely concerned with worldwide redemption. We see that in his book. But Isaiah also recognizes that there is a very personal aspect of redemption. He says, Lord, you are my God and I will exalt you. When Isaiah could look in any direction and see somebody somewhere worshiping a false god, he looks to God as the only true God. He has no time for those other gods who are really no gods at all because his heart belongs to the Lord alone. Verse 1 not only tells us that Isaiah praised the Lord, it also tells us why Isaiah praised the Lord in this specific situation. He says, For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Isaiah is here referring to the amazing, the even supernatural ways in which the Lord acts in order to bring about his eternal decrees. These were not last-minute plans that the Lord made. It's not as if God was taken off guard and had to come up with a plan B. All things happen according to the purpose of his will, to the glory of his praise. His plans are formed of old. They are faithful. They are sure. And part of God's perfect plan is the destruction of the city and the foreigner's palace that we see in verse 2. 
This place will be a ruin, never to be rebuilt. Now, you may have noticed that city in this verse isn't very specific. Is this city referring to Nineveh? Is it referring to Babylon? Perhaps Moab, which we see later in the verse. Is it referring to Jerusalem? What we do know is that so far in the book of Isaiah, this prophet is not afraid to call out people by name. So, what is most likely happening is that verse 2, where we see the word city, it is a symbol for all of those cities that are brought to ruin because of their hostility to God and to his people. It's also probable that city is an allusion to the wasted city, which is found in the previous chapter, 20, chapter 24, verse 10. And that city is likewise referring to the whole sinful world, a city that is following the example of Babel by trying to reach the heavens on their own, by their own efforts. But this city will be destroyed. This city will never be rebuilt. The Lord is victorious over the hostile nations. But look at the result in verse 3. Strong peoples and ruthless nations that once opposed the Lord will rightly fear him. They will give to him the reverence that he is due. In other words, the nations will be converted. Not only is the Lord victorious over the city that is ruthless and prideful and wasted, but it's those very kind of people that he saves and brings into the fold. And this, this was the plan from the very beginning. Remember that in Genesis 17, the covenant promises that are given to Abraham included the promise that all the nations would be blessed in him. Though God certainly chose a nation to be the recipients of the gospel promises, part of his plan, which is formed of old, faithful, and sure, is that Gentile nations would be converted that they too would become worshipers of the one true God. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's also why the Lord Jesus, in giving the great commission to his apostles in Matthew 28, commanded them to make disciples of all the nations. Then in Matthew 24, verse 14, we see that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The end does not come until all of the nations hear this gospel. This has always been the plan. The Lord is building a church that consists of people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people. And Isaiah is praising the Lord 
in this passage because of the wonderful things that God is doing, including bringing the Gentiles in. Not only does Isaiah praise the Lord for these Gentile conversions, but he praises the Lord for what we see in verses 4 and 5, namely the protection of the Lord for his people. He is indeed a strong tower, a shelter for the poor and the needy. Ruthless enemies will not prevail. The Lord protects his own. The next section of this passage is praise for the Lord's salvation, found in verses 6 through 9. Looking at verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So we see here a banquet a feast, a rich feast. This isn't the first time that we come across a feast in the Old Testament. Uh, For instance, there was on Mount Sinai a feast when the Mosaic Covenant was inaugurated. A feast also marked the commencement of the kingships of both Saul and David. But this is a feast for all Peoples, a feast that follows his victory over the city. And we see yet again a reference to all peoples. He uses the word all five times in verses six through eight so that we don't miss this point. This feast is not just for Israel, but for all those who will trust in the Lord. All are invited, all are Welcome, or as the Lord Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is, after all, the Lord Jesus who invites us to the ultimate feast the feast that we know of as the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a celebration of the consummation of all things. Well, this feast in verse 6 is in itself a tremendous, joyful occasion, but it gets even better, as indicated by the and in verse 7. God is going to make a rich feast for all peoples, and he's going to swallow up death forever. Church, this is very good news. Many of you know that I have the privilege of serving as a corporate chaplain. That's my full-time ministry. I serve multiple companies in Richmond. uh, And a large part of what I do is caring for people in their grief. um, And I also officiate a lot of funerals. So I am often reminded of the reality of death. And I get to minister to people who are dealing with with the tragic effects of death. Death is an unwelcome enemy in this life. It's a result, it's a consequence of the entrance of sin into the world. 
It is not a part of God's good original creation. But because of sin, death has surely ravaged this world, and now it is an inescapable reality that we must all deal with. But thanks be to God for the good news of verses 7 and 8 in our passage today. Verses that are undoubtedly the clearest prediction of Christ's resurrection from the dead that we find in the Old Testament. Listen to these words. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken the covering, the veil that is cast over, that spread over all of the nations, it's death itself. But the Lord swallows up the funeral coverings because they aren't needed any longer. Where there is no more death, there is no need for funeral coverings. The Lord himself has dealt the final blow to the dreaded enemy that is death. But how does he do that? Since death is, according to Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin, then how can death possibly be defeated and swallowed up if we have all sinned? Well, we find the answer to that question in the very words of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John, both of whom quote these verses from Isaiah. So first, the Apostle Paul says this, in 1 Corinthians 15, which is largely a chapter about the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says this, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory, dear church, comes through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who humbled himself, leaving his throne in heaven, coming into a world, adding human nature to himself, and being born from the Virgin Mary. After living a perfect, sinless life, this Jesus climbed the mountain. The mountain that Isaiah refers to in verse 7, which is no doubt Mount Zion. It is there that Jesus takes the place of his people upon the cross, where he receives the complete wrath of the Father upon himself, so that those who trust in him will not receive that condemnation Sin is not the only thing that the Lord dealt with on the cross. After he died on the cross, Jesus was then buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But it's on the third day that Jesus rose from the dead, just like he said he would. Or, as the Apostle Peter said, 
It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And when Jesus was resurrected, he rose victoriously over sin and over Satan, and yes, even over death. This does not mean, of course, that believers in Jesus Christ will not experience physical death any longer, for Christians ever since the resurrection of Jesus have indeed died physically. But what it does mean is that Christians will not experience, a, experience the eternal punishment of sin in the lake of fire, which is what the Apostle John refers to as the second death. But instead, all those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith will experience a resurrection from the dead, never to die again, just like our Savior Jesus. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation says this, as he also quotes Isaiah, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, this is where all things are heading. This is the consummation of all things. This was always the plan. This was God's plan formed of old, faithful and sure. In the Garden of Eden, sin led to all of us being cast out and then God placed angels with flaming swords in front of that garden as a big keep out sign reminding us as one children's book says because of your sin you can't come in our sin had separated us from our creator God who loves us who cherishes us but praise be to this God, he has done everything necessary for us to be rescued, to be redeemed, to be reconciled to him as he brings us back safely into his presence to enjoy the richest, most amazing feast that we could ever imagine. At the end of that children's book, we read this. God says it is wonderful to live with him. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But I died on the cross to take your sin, so all my friends can now come in. We are brought back to God to enjoy perfect fellowship with him. We are no longer separated from him, unable to approach him, but we get to do what Adam and Eve did. We get to enjoy that fellowship with the Lord as we enjoy him in all of his splendor. Verse 9 says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus Christ this is our God, and he has come for us that he might save us. Because of him and his victory over death, there is coming a day 
when he himself will wipe away every tear from our face and listen, those tears, they will never return. No more suffering, no more sadness, no more sin, no more death. It's all been swallowed up by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, church, let us be glad. Let us rejoice in his salvation. Not everybody will rejoice in this salvation, unfortunately. The last section of this passage is about praise for the Lord's judgment in verses 10 through 12. And this actually comes as a result of those who do not trust in the Lord and rejoice in his salvation. So in these verses, Isaiah now uses the city of Moab to represent all those who will not repent and trust in the Lord. These people are said to be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. Isaiah uses this crude, graphic illustration to show us the drastic difference between the two options that all people have. A rich feast in the presence of God or swimming through a dunghill the only alternative to the feast. Notice that verse 11 shows Moab in his pride, attempting to swim by the skill of his own hand. This is the way of self-salvation, trying to do it apart from God, the epitome of pride and foolishness. No matter how high the fortifications of the walls are, no matter how strong and mighty Moab may view himself, the Lord will destroy and bring him down to the dust. Again, only two options given by Isaiah. A rich feast in the fellowship of God who through his resurrected Messiah swallows up death forever and grants to us an unimaginable eternity in his presence or swimming and drowning in the dunghill. Or what the Apostle John called the lake of fire, which is the second death. This is a place of eternal torment and punishment of sin. So let me just urge you today, if you haven't rested in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, come to him. Receive his gift of salvation. His heart yearns for you and he desires you to come to him, even with all of your baggage and all of your burdens. Let him wipe away the tears from your face and grant to you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In our passage today, Isaiah praised the Lord for victory over Israel's enemies, for the Lord's rich banquet, his feast for all peoples, along with his swallowing up death forever, and the Lord's long-awaited salvation. So just a few points of application from, from that. Stony Point, let us be a church that continuously does what Isaiah did. Let us praise the Lord for his victory over sin and Satan and death. 
The Lord is our stronghold, and every day he fights for us. May we praise the Lord for the rich feast that he provides for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Our God is deeply concerned for all peoples to know him. May that be our heartbeat. May we be deeply concerned about the salvation of all people. And may we even be looking for opportunities to tell those around us about this glorious good news that we've been talking about. Let us also long for that day that Jesus returns. Listen to what Paul told Titus. He said, Look for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. May we long for that day. And then lastly, let us earnestly wait for that day that we will experience the greatest of all feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The supper that is only possible because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who swallows up death forever. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for this glorious good news. Thank you that you have given it to us in your word, that we might meditate upon it, be amazed by it, be transformed by it. And I pray, oh God, that we would be a people that not only delights in this best of all news, but that we would also be a people that desire to share that good news with others. Lord, thank you for what you are doing in this world as you build your church and for calling us to be a part of that. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.